This is the second in a series of talks by Joel titled The Practice of Inquiry 2, Impermanence and Emptiness, recorded October 15, 2006, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. One way to free our attention from the story of I is to reduce the power of the story. And the reason the story is so absorbing is because under delusion we believe the only possible happiness comes by getting the things we want, the things that will enhance ourself, and avoiding the things that we don't want which are normally those things that seem to threaten that self. Now, things here aren't necessarily just worldly possessions, although they certainly can be, cars and clothes and things like that, but they can also be people, uh, they can be social status, they can be respect, they can be fame. It's not just a physical thing. They're emotional things and situations and so forth and so on. And this quest to acquire what we want and to avoid what we don't want forms what we call in the business the dramatic tension of the story. It's true, by the way, of all stories. They're all about will the hero or heroine get what they want and avoid what they don't want? Will they escape the monster that's going to eat them? And will they get the boyfriend or girlfriend that's going to make them happy? If you don't have that traumatic tension, it's a boring story. But the big problem is that all these things that we think are going to make us happy are impermanent. That's just the fact of life. And because they're impermanent, it means we can never attain true abiding happiness in this way. We can get fleeting pleasures, we can get momentary gratification, we can even get things that last for a while, relationships, that continue to be satisfying for years. But in the end, one way or another, we're going to lose it. It's going to disintegrate, break down, die, or we're going to disintegrate, break down, and die. So our little time together with the thing that we like, that brings us happiness, is going to come to an end. And the trouble is most people actually know this, but they don't have any idea of the possibility of anything else. So they don't really acknowledge it. They keep on trying to find that abiding happiness through impermanent things. Here's what Lama Gendon Rinpoche says about this. If we think carefully about the unsatisfactory nature of ordinary worldly existence, we will recognize that it's characterized by suffering. We should therefore aim directly at Buddhahood and turn our minds away from the worldly values. In this case, there is a firm foundation for our spiritual path.
which is why it is said that renunciation is the legs of our meditation with which we walk to full enlightenment. In other words, when we actually realize that we can never get happiness pursuing worldly things, we attain inner renunciation. It means that that story of I is less obsessive. It doesn't hold the same interest for us. Or let me put it this way. Let me revise that. The story of I pursuing worldly happiness starts to lose its interest. Actually what happens is we acquire a new story. It's the story of I, the spiritual seeker, pursuing enlightenment, which is actually, he's suggesting what we should do here is switch stories. This is a very important thing, and this sometimes confuses seekers on a path, because they realize uh, after a while, oh, I've still got a story going here, but now this is a spiritual story. No, that's true. I'm not pursuing fame and fortune and a career and love and all that, but I am pursuing enlightenment, I'm pursuing union with the divine, something like that. And there's still an I in there, and then they get all upset and worried about that. But the truth of the matter is, it's a necessary step on a spiritual path. And the reason is because as long as we are pursuing worldly happiness, through acquiring or avoiding worldly things, it goes on forever. But if we start pursuing enlightenment on a mystical path, then that story is designed not to go on forever, it's designed to end. It will end. It will trip you up. You don't have to worry about your stopping or your not, because that's all part of story too. The ego can't get out of it through the ego. So keep going. Trust. It'll kill you. That's what it's designed to do. Now, uh, we have to make a distinction here between inner renunciation, which is simply the realization that this isn't working, my worldly life, and a loss of interest in it. At least it isn't so compulsive. It isn't the focus of our whole life. So yes, especially if we stay in a householder situation, of course we're going to be interested in worldly things, but we realize our happiness doesn't depend on the outcome of these things. Only our function depends on the outcome. Uh, outer renunciation is different. Outer renunciation is when we actually give up a householder's life and stop pursuing any sort of worldly goals or whatever. And it certainly has its place on a spiritual path for some people. And many great mystics have become outer renunciates. It's kind of a crash course in detachment. But it is not essential. There are other mystics who did not ever become uh, outer renunciates. Uh, Ibn Arabi is one that comes to mind immediately. He was a householder. He was married. Never became a, an outer renunciate. And you could become an outer renunciate and if you haven't become an inner renunciate, what good does it do you? So it's much more important to become an inner renunciate. That is necessary on a spiritual path. So we're not talking about outer renunciation here, and we're not talking about renunciation, either outer or inner, because the world is an evil place. 
We're talking about it happening because we see some truth about the world. There's nothing to do with good or evil, it's just the truth. It's impermanent. And if we become attached to it, if we look at it as the source of our happiness, we are bound to be disappointed. We are bound to suffer. It's inevitable. Now, there's one other thing to say about this, and that is, it's easy to understand and even accept this intellectually. We all know everything's impermanent. But it's interesting. We continue to harbor a secret hope that, yes, maybe we could really be happy if only we got what we really wanted. Because we only really get this through actually going through the experience of having and losing and seeing the impermanence that we come to this inner renunciation. We finally come to the conviction, yes, it's true. Nothing outwardly has to change, but there's an inward letting go. So I'm describing this to you because it's a psychological phenomenon that everybody in a spiritual path goes through one way or another. And there are ways that we can help it along. And the main way is to look directly at impermanence, to face it in our own experience, to stop turning away from it, to stop pretending that it's not true. And it's not just that the objects in the world in general are impermanent, that they all wear out or decay or break down or die, but it's that the phenomena that appear and disappear moment to moment in our experience are all impermanent. In a very minute way, we tend to think of ourselves as walking around in a world of objects, banging into them, and, and they're here for a while, this lamp is here for, you know, 50 years or more, then it breaks up and eventually it all decays away back down to molecules and so forth. But actually, our naked experience of the world is not that. If we look closely, we see that moment to moment, everything is impermanent. Everything in our experience. And when we do experience the moment to moment impermanence of everything, that is what helps wean us away from becoming attached in the first place. Because we begin to realize, in reality, there actually is nothing to grab onto. Here's what the Buddha says about a meditator who's become mindful of this moment-to-moment -moment impermanence, the impermanence of the phenomena that arises in the six fields of consciousness. He beholds how the phenomena arise, beholds how they pass away, beholds the arising and passing away of the phenomena. This clear consciousness is present in him, because of his knowledge and mindfulness. And he lives independent 
unattached to anything in the world. So notice what he's pointing to. This whole business of letting go of our attachments. Letting go of our attachments. When we let go of our attachments, when we let go of our obsession with getting and and holding on to things and avoiding things and so forth, this is what frees our attention ultimately to return to the source. It's not captivated by this drama that's going on all the time about what I'm going to get, what I'm going to lose, and so forth and so on. All right, so we are going to uh, use choiceless awareness to observe moment-to-moment impermanence. And it's not going to be guided, but now I'm going to give you some instructions first before we get going. Begin with concentration on your meditation object to stabilize attention. And then you start moving through the various fields of awareness. The sense field, sound field, smell and taste, if any are present, sight field, expand farther, thoughts, and then finally attention fills the total field of consciousness awareness. And as you go, you're just trying to observe the impermanence of all the phenomena arising in the fields. Just observe it, that's all. If you need to point out to yourself, oh, because you're getting a little lost, look at phenomena, go ahead. Use a little introspection to make sure that that's what you're doing. The one field that looks the most permanent is the sight field, particularly when we're sitting in formal meditation. So when you get to the sight field, if you want, do a little experiment, blink, open your eyes, look over to the left, to the right. You play around with it. You'll see it's completely impermanent. Remember, as you're doing this, you want to be able to see in detail. In detail. And if you're listening to the rain, you might just want to have attention be so refined that you hear a few individual drops and see how impermanent they are. So, don't be afraid to experiment here, and now we're allowing attention to move around a little bit. Allow it to move around. The one thing that is a fault is if you get caught up in a train of thought and get distracted. Even if you get it caught up in a train of thought about how impermanent things are. Be careful of that one. Ah, I'm beginning to see how impermanent things are. Oh, yeah. Oh, this, this meditation is going great here. Now, this is really, no, no, no. Yeah. So, okay, those thoughts are all impermanent. Notice that and just return to choiceless awareness and then, you know, so you get to see other phenomena aside from just thoughts being impermanent. Okay? Okay, 
So we'll do two rounds. Continue this mindfulness through lunch. And when we come back here at 2.30, I want you all to bring a clean, empty cup. You get one from the dining hall. They'll allow you to bring it up here. Clean, empty cup. Bring it here at 2.30 when you come for our afternoon session. Okay? If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Is there anyone that does not have a cup? Yeah. No, wait, wait, you don't have a cup? Okay, you can have this one. Everybody else got a cup. Okay, let's go on here. The impermanence of things is a sign of something even more profound about the true nature of things. And that is what the Buddhists call the emptiness of objects or things. And that technically means the lack of inherent existence or the lack of independent existence or the lack of objective existence. So the emptiness of things is not uh, our normal use of empty, like like a physical emptiness, like the cup is empty, because it doesn't have any liquid in it. It means that the cup is empty, not because it doesn't have any liquid in it, but everything is empty. The clock is empty, the microphone is empty, the lamp is empty, the paper is empty, the little stand is empty. Everything is empty of inherent existence. And the impermanence of everything is a sign of that. Here's what the Buddhist scholar Gajin Nagao, I'm sure I'm butchering that one, says about it. If things had inherent substantive existence, 
They would be immutable and could not change. Only because things are empty of any substantive existence can they change. And what he means is, if this cup really existed inherently, then nothing could ever happen to the cup. It couldn't disintegrate and disappear. The fact that it does eventually break and then disintegrate and disappear is a sign there was nothing there to begin with, so to speak. It wasn't made out of anything inherently real. We're going to explore this empirically, experientially, in just a minute. This word emptiness, which is a translation of shinyata in Sanskrit, and you might also run across shinyata translated by the word void, there's the two most common translations, is specifically a Buddhist term, but it's known in all other traditions. Let me read you the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart. All things are created from nothing. Therefore, their true origin is nothing. And so far as this noble will inclines towards created things, it flows off with created things toward their nothing. So what he's saying is, as long as our will is chasing created things, we're actually chasing nothing. And he says, no wonder we suffer and have sorrow. Because inherently what we're doing is going to cause suffering and sorrow because we're trying to get nothing. You can't get nothing. You can't get a hold of it. You can't keep it. You can't hang on to it. The Sufi poet Rumi writes about the things we desire. The worldly man imagines that a non-existent thing possesses splendor. Oh friend, why would a wise man devote his life to the work of non-existence? Because of the darkness in your eyes, you imagine that a nothing is a something. This is pure Buddhism. The things don't have any inherent existence, and because of our darkness of our eyes, because of our ignorance, our delusion, we imagine that they do. And then in a different place, he says, one of my favorite lines of all time, he's talking about the self and things in the world, objects in the world, uh, either other people or, or things that we desire, houses, cars, and so forth. He says, a nothing has fallen in love with a nothing. A nothing at all has waylaid a nothing at all. <laughs> Describe our deluded existence. <clears throat> so what is unique about Buddhism is that they go directly for the throat, so to speak. They zero in on emptiness and they bypass an extra step which almost all the other religions, the mystics of the other religions take, partly just acknowledging the vocabulary of their tradition. They speak of everything as actually God. So there's nothing but God. So you think there's a cup here, but it's God, it's not a cup. So they'll use this positive term, or it's Allah, or it's the real, or something. But then when you go to find out what is God, God is a no thing, as we're going to find out later.
So, to have this insight is very profound. The insight behind the idea, because when we're talking about nothing and shinyad and all that, we're talking about an idea and a concept, but we want to get below that. As I said in the beginning, we're not interested in just an intellectual understanding. So, we're going to try and get a little uh, taste, an experiential taste, of what this really means, what these mystics are talking about. So, we've already experienced moment-to-moment impermanence of everything, but probably most of you still experience yourself living in a world of objects that exist out there. Like if you take your cup and put it out someplace in front of you where you can see it, Everybody got their cup out there? Yes. So look at your cup. And I'm going to ask you, is there an object sitting out there in front of you called a cup, which exists independently of you? Yes, yes. It appears so. Yes. Good. Well, that's what we're interested in. Does it appear to anybody not to? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> That's doubt. See, that's radical doubt. And you know what? You see how radical it is? In a, in a different set of people, they would be calling the men in the white suits to come get them. <laughs> no, they would. Isn't that true? If they thought he really meant it, ooh-ooh, what do you mean you're not sure? And you'd see that people start, <laughs> if we were in a subway car, the next stop, everybody would get off. He'd be sitting there alone. Now look at this, because this is important, because now you're going to get a sense of how uh, profound and radical this is. Mystics say that is not true. There is not an object called a cup sitting out there independently of you. So we are going to make our own inquiry to find out if what the mystics say is true or if what our own minds believe is true. In fact, what our own minds are absolutely convinced is true and are resistant to any even questioning of this. But we're going to make an inquiry. So we're not going to have a a religious argument about it. We're not even going to have a theoretical discussion about it. We're just going to go, look, like good sacred scientists should. But before we go look, to avoid any semantic confusion, we want to start defining our terms a little bit more precisely. Two terms we've been using, phenomena and objects. And we're going to define, this is arbitrary, this is just for the sake of our communication, so don't get into a thing, well, that's not my understanding. We're just, as a, as a community of language speakers, are going to agree on how we're going to use two terms. You're going to agree on how I'm using the two terms. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that, uh, the term phenomena refers to whatever appears in the six fields of consciousness. A sight, sound, sensation, smell, taste, a thought, emotion, any combination of those, overlap of those, the naked experience of the stuff 
that we immediately are aware of. Notice that a thought as phenomena, it's totally irrelevant whether it's true or false. So if I say unicorns uh, are all unicorns are blue, that's a phenomenon. There may not be any unicorns, and if there were unicorns, they may not all be blue or whatever, but if I think all unicorns are blue, if I even visualize in my mind a blue unicorn, that's phenomena appearing. An object we're going to use to apply to anything that is supposed to exist objectively, that is, outside of us, of consciousness. Okay, we're just following this, I'm just leading up to the experiment here. Okay. So then we're going to use our serviceable mind, which we've been training in choiceless awareness, to investigate one particular object, this cup. And based on that, we'll see what we come up with. So we're going to engage in a guided meditation. And you need to, at some point, be able to pick your cup up. If you can reach over quickly and easily to get it, leave it on the floor. If you can't, put it in your lap and... Uh, yeah, that's nice. Uh, if you have a little something to put it on so it's not in direct contact with your knees, that's helpful too. Okay, so I'm going to uh, ring the gong here. And as usual, we'll start off with a little concentration just to stabilize our attention because in order to really see, experience directly, we want to have an undistracted mind. We don't want to have a mind that's getting lost in thoughts, and particularly now thoughts about what's going on, because the ego mind is going to start thinking like crazy, but we want to just see, okay? So we want to be able to just ignore that or just say, okay, well, that's just thought. So here we go. So let's start with concentrating on our meditation object in order to stabilize attention.
Now look at your cup. And notice that what you are experiencing in this moment is a phenomena appearing in the visual field. Now close your eyes and notice that the phenomena has completely vanished. Now open your eyes and notice that a phenomena has arisen again in the visual field. Now repeat this closing and opening the eyes again several times and notice each visual phenomena is impermanent. Each one arises and passes away. Now open your eyes. And reach over, and if you can, tap your cup without picking it up. Just tap it so it makes a sound. Okay. Notice that what you experienced was a phenomena appearing in the auditory field, the sound field. Let's do it again. Notice that the auditory phenomena is different than the visual phenomena. It's very different. Look at the visual phenomena and then tap. Very different. Now, close your eyes and tap several times. And keep tapping and notice that each tap is impermanent. It rises and it passes away. And now stop tapping. And all those individual sound phenomena have passed. Now, pick up your cup and hold it in the palm of one hand and close your eyes.
Notice what you are experiencing is a sensory phenomena appearing in the sensation field. Keep your eyes closed and notice that the sensation is very different from the sound phenomena and very different from the visual phenomena. Now, bring the cup under your nose, keeping your eyes closed, and sniff. See if you can, if there's any odor at all. If you do detect any odor, notice that this is a smell phenomena, which is very different from the sensation phenomena that you are experiencing now, which is very different from the auditory or sound phenomena that's gone now. And if your eyes are closed, it's very different from the visual phenomena, which you are not experiencing right now. If there was no aroma, that's okay. Not everything has an aroma. Then try licking your cup. There's a sensation phenomena. Is there a taste phenomena? Probably not, but let's see. Maybe you have a leftover tea in there or something. If there is a taste phenomena, notice that it's different from the smell phenomena, which was different from the sensation phenomena, which was different from the sound phenomena, which is different from the visual phenomena. Now put the cup back down. Now, close your eyes and notice that none of the phenomena that you experienced before are now present. They are all impermanent. They are all gone. The visual phenomena, the sound phenomena, the sensation phenomena, the taste phenomena, and the smell phenomena. None of them are present in awareness. All have vanished completely away. But, if you are like most people, you are still convinced, keeping your eyes closed, that there is an inherently existing cup out there in front of you, where you put it. Keep your eyes closed. If you're a little unclear about that, then intentionally generate 
the following thought, or you can put it in your own words, I'll give you the essence of it. Even though, right now, I neither see, hear, touch, smell, or taste it, there is definitely an objectively existing cup sitting out there in front of me. Think about that for a few moments. Notice that what you are experiencing now are thought phenomena appearing in the mental field. And if you have concluded, yes, there is definitely an inherently, objectively existing cup out there in front of me right now, in a certain sense you have located your cup. But it is in your mind. It is a thought in your mind. It is literally imaginary. Now, allow all the thoughts you're having about the cup to self-liberate. And just return to choiceless awareness. Notice the impermanence of all phenomena arising in all the six fields of awareness. Notice that even that thought that there is a cup objectively existing out there in front of you was itself impermanent until I just recalled it to mind by mentioning it. And then in not too many moments from now, this thought will vanish away because it also is impermanent.
So did anybody find a real, objectively existing cup out there in front of you? Yes, Maura. Well, I was just saying, yes, I did. I think it still looks like a cup to me. Yes, it still looks like a cup to you. But you never actually found one, did you? With my eyes closed? With your eyes open or closed. Right now, do you see an object called a cup, or are you having a visual phenomena experience? Let me put it to you this way. If now you reached down and tried to pick up the cup and your hand went right through it, would you still say it's a cup? A real cup? No. No. Then you'd say, there really isn't a cup there. I was fooled. It was smoke and mirrors or something. So the visual phenomena, what I'm saying is, by itself does not a cup make. It's not an object. The visual phenomena is a phenomena appearing in awareness. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? You know, we've been conditioned since, since this high to think seeing is believing. We have that expression. So we are here tapping into very deep conditioning. Conditioning is not just mental conditioning. It's conditioning that affects the way the world appears to us, our actual perception at that fundamental level. There's a stage in child development, and until the kids are around, I can't remember what the age is, like 18 months to two years, they don't believe in object permanence. That's right, they have to be taught it, conditioned. They look for it. And then yeah. at a certain age, they will look for it when you put it away. That's correct. I mean, that's correct that there is a theory like that. And what it does demonstrate is that there's something we learn, we're conditioned. Did anybody else find a cup? I know that I can be guaranteed touch around them when I go there. Yes, and what happens when you touch it? Touch it. Go ahead and touch it. Now you're having the experience of a sensation, right? You might have two experiences together. I pick up the cup, I hold it in my hand, I look at it, and I'm having a sensation phenomenon is here and a visual phenomenon is here. This is why I make this distinction between an object, cup, and the phenomena appearing. Anybody else? Was your question, did you find... A cup, an, an object, object, an object. Phenomena. No, object. Oh no, we found lots of phenomena. Because I've verified at least six instances of a phenomena. Yes, oh yes, very good. This is the whole point of making the distinction. Certainly they're phenomena. When uh, mystics say that there is no object cup, they're not denying that phenomena don't appear in consciousness. Obviously phenomena appear in consciousness. That's not our question. Phenomena appear in consciousness when you're dreaming. Phenomena appear in the consciousness of crazy people who are hallucinating. They're not necessarily objects. So we're trying to find, is there an object behind the phenomena? We could put it that way if that's helpful. Did we find an object behind the phenomena? How could we ever know? I can't verify it. Oh, well, okay. Then you're walking around believing in something you can't verify. 
Why do we even have the idea that there's an object then if it's something we can never possibly verify? Well, what good is it? I could take a photo or someone could draw a picture and it might look just like my picture. No, it wouldn't, actually. Well, if, if we bring that photo, the photographs would. No, it wouldn't, actually. Yes, enough. Ah! <laughs> good enough for rock and roll. Good enough for rock and roll. Very good. <laughs> That's right. Close enough to be useful to us, which it certainly is, just like it's useful to say it's raining outside, or it was raining outside earlier today. That's very useful. It's not the least bit true. There's no it that you'll ever find that is raining. You can get an airplane, fly through the skies. You won't find any object up there called it that's raining. So it's a shorthand way we have of communicating with each other. In that case, we know that it's a shorthand. We know that there is no referent to it. It would just be so cumbersome to describe at least what we think is the whole process of raining. You know, the certain atmospheric pressure here and the temperature has reached a certain gradient and so this has produced condensation of moisture drops in the air, whatnot, and now they are falling to earth because of the laws of gravity. I mean, my God, it's raining, okay? That's all we need to communicate that. So, yes, we're not saying it's not useful to use a term like cup as though it were an object, but we want to know what we're doing. That's why I said from the very beginning. It's not that we want to give up ever using the term cup. Oh my God, the description of what's going on would be so complicated when we got down there and trying to figure out, is that my cup on the shelf in my slot? Well, the combination of the visual phenomena, the sound phenomena, the sensation phenomena, the smell phenomena that I'm used to is, is not appearing altogether correlated in this particular spot. No, you say, hey, I don't think that's my cup up there. Is that your cup? <laughs> well, get your cup out of there. i got to put my cup up there. <laughs> Look what's happening here. Our thinking mind is creating an imaginary boundary that in a certain sense lassoes a whole set of phenomena within this concept, the idea of a cup, of an objective cup. It lassoes a whole set of phenomena that are constantly arising and passing away, impermanent phenomena, and giving it a name, cup for the purposes of ease of communication. The problem is, we've lost track of what's going on, and we have now reified that cup, and taken it to be an objectively existing object out there, rather than just a name that we use for convenience in our linguistic communication. Why is it a problem? Well, for one thing is, when we think there's an objectively existing cup out there, we think there's something we could hold on to. We don't realize there is no cup out there. It's just this phenomenon, rising, passing, rising, passing, rising, passing. There's nothing to grab. There's nothing to become attached to. 
So if we don't grasp and we don't become attached, we don't suffer. And when we reify the world this way and we come up with these solid objects, these clunky things, we miss the true open spaciousness and all the music that takes place within that. We cease to, to experience the world as play, as music, as dance. We experience it as the nightmare that we are stuck living in. So it's not just a philosophical exercise. Who would care if it was? And the more you do these kinds of exercises, these kinds of inquiries, and the more you get a direct perceptual insight into this, the more your actual experience of your environment will change. Here's what um, the great Taoist Chuang Tzu says about this. Just as a road is formed merely by people walking constantly upon it, likewise the things are formed by their being customarily designated by this or that particular name. There are no things apart from the name. There is no cup apart from the name. Or the name reflecting the thought cup. Yes. Well, what about, um, I don't know, it's deductive reasoning or something. I mean, you know, every time I go to get some tea, you know, there's my cup. I'm sorry. Now, times I'm doing that, you know, I just deduce there's a cup. No, uh, actually, you induce there's a cup. It's called induction, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Very, very good question, and we're going to deal with that tonight. Okay? Yes. Um, we have another word in English, which is virtual. Uh, I believe that what you're telling us is that the world of objects is actually virtual. Very good. That's an excellent way to describe it. Boy, I think I'll start using that. Just steal it right out from under you. <laughs> Here's what the Buddhist Awakening of Faith Sutra says. Separated from the mind, there are not objects of senses. All conceptions of them arise in the mind and are developed and manifested by the false activities of the mind. Not one of them has any self-substance of its own. They are all alike brought into manifestation and kept in continuity of relation by false imaginations of ignorance of sentient beings. Here's the Hindu Shankara. No matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he is really seeing Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. He sees mother of pearl and imagines that it is silver. He sees Brahman and imagines that it is the universe. But this universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. And we could amplify that by saying this universe of objects, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is constituted of nothing but names. And one of the uh, famous slogans from the whole Hindu tradition is that the universe is made of name and form, form being phenomena. 
There's phenomena and there's name and there's nothing else. You go look and you won't find anything else. And then here's uh, Ibn Arabi, just in case you think this is some sort of Far Eastern idea. The cosmos is but a fantasy without any real existence, which is another meaning of the imagination. That is to say, you imagine that it is something separate and self-sufficient, while in truth it is not so. We think there's a world of objects out there. And when we die, this world of objects is going to go on and on. And people are going to walk around and this and that. And we're going to miss something. But what the mystics say is, no, that's not true. There is nothing that exists out there apart from you. You're not going to miss anything. You're missing something now. You're missing the realization that everything you're experiencing, everything you're looking at, everything that's happening inside, outside, to you, to that, to this and whatnot, is all a divine dance. So this afternoon, what we're going to do is go solo, because when you're sitting in formal meditation in this hall, not that many objects you can go investigate. So I want you to wander around, go have tea, do whatever you would do normally when you have a chance for solo practice, except that you have an inquiry to make. Or I put it this way, you have a mission to go find one, just one, independently, objectively existing object and bring it back here tonight. <laughs> is there a prize? <laughs> yes, there's a prize. <laughs> you get to spend how many culpas more in samsara? <laughs> it's a booby prize. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, even if you don't find uh, any objects, Bring the supposed object, the cup, back tonight. Okay? This, I should call it a conventional object. That's one way if we want to be precise about it. It's not a real object, it's a conventional object. You can bring it back. Okay, so we're not even going to like take a break or anything. We've used up too much time here. So you can, you know, you can go investigate in the bathroom and see if there are any objects there if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Fred looked in the bathroom. He didn't find any. Just don't bring it back. <laughs> 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 okay. No, no, nobody can top that one. I'm leaving you. <laughs> You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.